I'm, I'm here with uh, Stephen Hicks, um, and, and this is going to be a fun podcast. That we're going to be talking about uh, education and the purpose of education and uh, you know higher education universities, what's going on in the universities today. Um, and, and Stephen Hicks, you're, you're a pretty well-known guy, but for those people who don't know who you are, do you want to kind of tell them, give an introduction to who you are and what you do and that, that sort of thing? Mm, sure. Well, I'm a uh, philosopher by training. I was born and raised in Canada, did my undergraduate in Canada. I then came to the U.S. for grad school in philosophy mm. and uh, ended up getting my uh, professor job in the U.S. Uh, jobs are mm. scarce for philosophers <laughs> and have been here ever since. I do a lot of uh, uh, philosophy of education, which I think is what mm. in part led to this invitation to uh, to your yeah. podcast. But uh, more broadly than that, I'm uh, very interested in what I think of as intellectual history, how mm. ideas are developed and how they are influential across generations, often you know, modified and blended and integrated with other ideas. And so in many cases, I'm interested in how contemporary issues uh, that often we might think is a new and fresh issue, but nonetheless, we are arguing about it inside a framework that was developed some generations earlier. And in many mm -hmm. cases, knowing that uh, that framework and where it came from is illuminating. Gotcha. Yeah. And I, I mean, I think this is going to be interesting because I mean, uh, the education. So I, I guess I'll give a little bit of background for myself, for, for you, just so you know where I'm coming from as it relates to education. Like I grew up in the Madison, Wisconsin area, very progressive, you know, went to the public school system here growing up and like barely graduated high school. I had kind of gotten sick of raising my hand to go to the bathroom and things like that by the time I was 15. And I just, and, and, and on top of that, I got, I had, you know, I'm a Christian. So I had some theological and philosophical disagreements with, with, with the ways in which they're teaching and the things that they were teaching. And so I, sure. I, yeah. I just kind of fell through the cracks and I, that has always bothered me because I love learning, but I was never able, I didn't feel like I was ever able to be successful in the education system, the American public no, education no. system. And so, no. um, so this is like a thing I'm passionate about and I'm, I'm, you know, there's a lot to talk about. So, here, yeah. so you're, you're catching up and doing a self-education journey now. Yeah. At least yeah. trying to. Yeah, I'm trying to read as but, much as I can yeah. and talk to no, different people. That's a people. beautiful thing. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, for sure. And I so one of the interesting things that I know about you that maybe we can start by talking about this is obviously you, I think you, you've been on the Jordan Peterson podcast and you're part of his new academy, the Peterson Academy, which I've heard a little bit about here and there from him. Um, and it, it seems like he's taking a bit of a different approach to higher education through this. D what do you know about this? What And how are you a part of this thing? And, and yeah. maybe that can open up a whole different, a whole new conversation. Yeah, well, yeah I'm uh, yeah, part of the faculty of the new Peterson Academy, which is launching uh, this year very soon, soon actually. Uh, well, I think the, the, the strategic thinking behind this uh, which I'm not a part of, mm -hmm. but the idea is uh, in part technological to say now that we are in the 21st century, especially there's all of these wonderful communications technologies. Mm -hmm. How can we redo education to take advantage of the best of the technologies that are out there? Mm -hmm. That's not to say that the old ways of doing education are going to go by the by. Sure. But nonetheless, uh, there are many new experiments that need to be done with the new technologies, distance learning, mm -hmm. integration of video, sound, right, and uh, uh, and so on. Mm -hmm. 
Mm-hmm. So I think that's one one part of it. Uh, another part of it is uh, driven by economic factors. Uh, right now, the models of education, public school education or government school education and uh, higher education, very expensive delivery mm-hmm. models. Yeah. And uh, that is one of the things that's led to the student debt crisis of many students. So just purely economically, how can one deliver high quality education at a much reduced cost? Mm-hmm. And again, the technologies are, are going to enable us to do mm-hmm. that. And I think a third part of it is uh, philosophical about philosophy of education folding into that political. Much of current education is not really education. It's a kind of uh, I have my ideological agenda and I'm going to force feed it upon upon my my uh, my captive students. And that can be a, a philosophical position, broadly speaking, but one can have then a theological agenda, a political agenda, various sorts of agendas. And uh, to the extent that one is doing that, one's not really educating. And unfortunately, in our generation, we have serious problems uh, across the board in the now mm-hmm. institutions of, uh, of education. So I think part of the strategic thinking of, uh, uh, of the Peterson Academy is to say uh, mm-hmm. education should not be about force-feeding students one's agenda, mm-hmm. that in some sense it should be the liberal education ideal. Mm-hmm. Uh, students uh, need to learn some stuff and professors should have things to profess, but at the same time, Students are ultimately going to be responsible for thinking for themselves, making up their their own minds, and particularly on uh, all of the issues that are controversial, and there's lots and lots of those, any education that only delivers one side of an argument or one side of a position on an issue that everyone knows is controversial, that's a form of miseducation. So quite consciously, uh, Peterson and his team are choosing people who are from different parts of the political spectrum, different parts of the theological oh, spectrum, different yes. parts of the of the, the broad, more broadly ideological and philosophical spectrum, so the students get exposed to uh, different voices, so to yeah, so to speak. But sure. then at the same time, uh, you mentioned uh, uh, that Jordan Peterson has for many years now had his podcast. And so that's been part of his on, uh, you know, self-education in all of the issues because he's trying to uh, be a more universal thinker uh, mm-hmm. outside of his areas of expertise and to integrate that with his areas of expertise. So he's been, so to speak, gathering names of people he thinks are the best in the world in all sorts of different areas mm-hmm. and where possible getting them to come and teach a course in their area of expertise uh, at, mm-hmm. the, at the academy. So in my case, um, I, uh, I do philosophy, but I'm teaching two courses for them, uh, one on modern philosophy that basically mm. begins in the 1600s, what, uh, what we call modern philosophy that begins with Francis Bacon, Rene Descartes, and so forth, and then going through the big name philosophers and the major issues uh, up until the 20th century. And then a second course on postmodern philosophy, mm. as postmodernism in the last couple of generations has been the most a vigorous philosophical framework, mm-hmm. uh, you know, hotly contested, but nonetheless, what are the main philosophers' uh, ideas that fed into the postmodern package? 
and then several also philosophers who have been challenging various mm -hmm. elements of the postmodern package. So essentially, what's been going on philosophically for the last century mm -hmm. since uh, since 1900 or so. Mm -hmm. So uh, I, I was quite honored to be invited to uh, to teach those two courses. Yeah, that's awesome. Let's. I want to break this down a little bit because I'm interested in hearing what you have to say about this. Is it like as I've seen education move? People are like, okay, we have the internet, we've got uh, all of these ways in distributing information now. So why not use that in the education system to obviously bring education to a wider range of people who might not get it? I mean, I, I mean, there's. Uh, lectures all over YouTube. Even if you don't want to actually get a degree, just go to YouTube and you can learn anything. Yeah, 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 and that's and that's beautiful. really cool. And that's really great. And I, I, I'm not sure exactly where I stand here, but it. But is there anything to like the interpersonal nature of education? And that I think back to, I I think it was an Aristotle who took his his pupils out into nature. And, is that Aristotle? Am I thinking of the oh, right yeah, guy? Yeah, Aristotle was a great okay. biologist. Uh, yeah, yeah. So. and. And there's like always, I guess throughout history, there's an interpersonal relationship between the professor and the and the and the pupil or the the learner. And I'm just wondering, um, do you think that the technological aspect that people are moving towards, education systems are moving towards, is there could that hinder any any learning or mm -hmm. any, you know? Because I think about how we're having a conversation right now, and and people are going to listen to this later. People aren't going to have the ability to do what I'm doing to be able to ask you to follow, to follow up on your, right. on what yes. your statement is and things like that. And so there's, right. you, you miss out on that relationship that I think might be, I don't know if it's fundamental to education, but I just, it, it's very important at the very least. Right. So what yeah. do you think about that? Well, I think that yeah, the one technology cannot do everything in education. So if we have mm -hmm. our conception of what it is to be a fully educated person, Mm -hmm. And then in an ongoing fashion to continue right, oneself to to uh, to educate. And, uh, uh, yeah, as you're pointing out, YouTube lectures or other platforms, mm -hmm. those mostly are going to be one way directional information. Mm -hmm. So uh, they're not going to have the, the dialogic element. Right. Or mm -hmm. it's going to be mm -hmm. a truncated form in the comments section or, or something mm -hmm. like that. Right. So then you say, okay, fine, uh, 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 but uh, you know, the trade-off then is if you have uh, a traditional classroom or a traditional college, uh, to, to say, or university where where, uh, where I teach my uh, my Rockford University, mm -hmm. you you will have professors uh, who can then engage in dialogue, but at the same time, your professors are competent, but they're not necessarily the best person in the world on various things. So, right. Right. I, for example, you know, I know. You know, and I teach Thomas Aquinas, for example, and I can do a good job teaching Thomas Aquinas, but I'm not the most expert Thomist in the in the universe. So <laughs> yeah. the benefit then would be to say, how could we perhaps blend uh, to say we want to have a college space or a university space where there's a professor like me with a group of students and we will do all of the dialoguing element. And that's great. That's wonderful. Mm. And we can do Socratic things and various other kinds of uh, formal and informal models as well. Yeah. But is there a way to supplement that with saying who is, in fact, the best and most dramatic person on Aquinas in the world? Get yeah. that person into a studio, have him or her deliver a series of lectures on Aquinas, and those can then also be available to me. 
sure. And then from my perspective, then as a philosopher, well, let's do that also with Plato, with Aristotle, with the mm. Sophists, with Marcus Aurelius, with Augustine. So you build up a library mm. and it would be a curated library of the best people in the world on every major issue and the best people in the world on every major person. Mm -hmm. And for many people, that will be a dream education, right? If, right, if I'm a right. self-starting person and I can sit down and think about stuff and make my own notes and I can do some side mm -hmm. research and so on, that could very well be a, com a very complete education. But mm -hmm. you're right then to say it often is valuable to have uh, uh, students, particularly when they're younger, having discussions with a professor in perhaps Socratic mm -hmm. form. Because you can cover a lot of ground and mm. go where you want in a Socratic discussion. So that's extraordinarily valuable. We also know that students learn a huge amount from each other. Uh, often uh, they're a little less intimidated talking with each other and arguing about things. So maybe take the professor out of the equation and just have, uh, you know, groups of students. And, you know, I always like to joke that philosophy is really a drinking sport. You know, ringing, remembering my own uh, my own college and university mm -hmm. days, where yeah, you go for a beer with uh, with your classmates and you mm -hmm. argue about stuff for the next six hours until three yeah. o'clock in the morning, right, or right. whatever, and you learn a huge amount of stuff. So mm -hmm. yes, the interpersonal is important there, and so I think this is one of the beautiful things about the generation that we are in right now, mm -hmm. where we're thinking about the technologies and. Mm -hmm. What are their strengths and what are their limitations? And we don't really know until we experiment with them for right. the next 20 years or so and then try various blendings with all of the traditional uh, educational methods that have been developed over the centuries. And you know, I think uh, for the next couple of generations, we will be exploring and there will be a thousand failed experiments, but also there will be a hundred very successful <laughs> experiments and, right. uh, and so on. But I'm uh, I'm bullish on it. I think this is uh, only for the positive and open-ended uh, mm. uh, net benefits what we're doing right now. Yeah. No, I mean, it's been real cool. I mean, to watch through, you know, I've watched through some of the Genesis lectures from Jordan Peterson specifically. I mean, this have like millions and millions of you, like things that just would have never been possible unless you were to write them down into a book and then publish them but even so people aren't reading at the at the rate that they're watching or listening and on online and so it's like yeah, the, 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 it has been cool to see some of that stuff blow up and see people be able. I mean, even the Joe Rogan podcast is a good example of like oh, yeah. people will sit down and listen to some Joe Rogan talk to somebody for like four hours. And it's like, yeah, that's yeah. wild. That's a long time, you know. So it's I mean, that's yeah. all great. I, I think that's all really good. It's ex I think it's expanding the, the mind and it's it helping people think sure. through long, right. complex yeah. topics. So. Yeah. But at the same time, there are lots of new experimental methods, uh, you know, being developed. There are, you know, new colleges starting that are devoted to Socratic style, and they yeah. they say you know, this will this will be expensive, but you know, we want to have you uh, come into classroom having read stuff and ready to talk with a dozen of your peers and mm -hmm. uh, and a guiding professor, and that's what yeah. your education will be. And lots of uh, blendings, every possible blending. There's a new college trying to do do that uh, that blending. And the issue that you're talking about, uh, you know, how much of it do we do in bricks and mortar types of institutions? Or you know, what we think of as a standard college classroom. 
how much of it should perhaps be a more Aristotelian model mm-hmm. where, yeah, you actually are walking around in the park or in the woods and talking about stuff and actually, you know, interacting with nature. So all of right. those experiments yeah, are beautiful. Right. Yeah. I mean, and I think this can kind of lead maybe into the question about actually what education is. Maybe I jumped the gun talking about the methods in which we can get education out there. But what like (laughs) what actually is education and what is the purpose of education? So I guess I want to start kind of with that open ended question and see what your take is on that. And then maybe uh, we go back and forth a little bit and try to figure out what it is. I mean, this has been an interesting thing for me growing up. It's like, what, what, what is the purpose of this education or what am I trying to gain right. here? Yeah. So yeah. yeah, what do you think? All right. Well, okay. My approach to this is to say the education primarily is about younger people. Right? Mm-hmm. So if you think the human beings are an unusual species in mm-hmm. that uh, the amount of time that it takes for a human being from infancy to grow up to adulthood and be ready to function in the world as an adult. Uh, you know, for human beings, it's, it's at least a dozen years. Hmm. And now we actually would think it's cruel if you were to take a kid out of school and say, okay, kid, now you, know, right. you go out and, uh, and, and look after yourself as an adult right in the, in the world. So typically we're really thinking about the first 18 years of life. And the reason for that is that we as, as human beings, our physical development is much slower and our psychological development is, is much slower. And that is uh, uh, both a cost, but it also opens up lots and lots of, lots of benefits. So you know, by contrast, if you think of almost any other animal species, at most it's like two years mm. until when the, 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 the baby, whatever it is, right. is born. <laughs> And yeah. then by the time it's two years old, it's a full adult and it, it knows everything. It's got all of the skill set that it needs to go mm-hmm. out and live as an adult yeah. of that species. Sometimes it's one year. Sometimes it's a few months yeah. and so on. Yeah, so, look, we, we've got a one-year-old right now and uh, he, he's just not ready to go out on his he's own. He's not like ready. That. Yeah, okay. <laughs> right. Right. Even go. though what's happened in that one year already it's is on. astonishing and right. amazing, right? Right, right. totally. Okay, so yeah. good. So what this then means is for us as adults, as we are aware of this long developmental process, and we can just do it randomly. Some animal species do teach their young this way. They're just, they're kind of opportunistic, waiting for the right time for some lesson or other to be taught. Hmm. And then that's taught. But we, because of the huge amount of resources and the huge amount of time, we say we need to think about this strategically. Hmm. That is to say, we need, so to speak, an 18-year plan. And if I'm a parent, then parents do think, if they're decent parents, and this is most Mm -hmm. of them, uh, uh, about education in a systematic form. And what that Mm -hmm. means is they are having some sort of a conception of what it is by the time someone is 18, what they should be like, what their physical development should be like, what their psychological development should be like, just to start with those two, those yeah. two broad categories. And so that then is to say, you know, I want the kid to have a healthy body and I want the kid to have a healthy mind. Mm-hmm. And then you start developing a long list of all of the things that go into, into all of those things. You know, I need mm-hmm. good 
good food for the body, but also good food for the mind, right? Mm. And the kid needs to learn all of these physical skills, but then also all of these psychological skills and mm. all of these good physical habits, but then all of these good psychological habits. And so the list gets long and so forth. Mm. But it is by the time the kids say is 18, and we say, at that point, you're done with your education, you go out and you live your life as a human being, the kid is now as an adult, ready and able to do that. Mm -hmm. And so education then is going to be everything from zero to age 18, that Mm -hmm. we do thoughtfully to take that kid along that process. Now, that's a lot. Because right. we start to say, well, you know, there's uh, you know, a thousands and thousands of things I want the kid to know. There are you know, hundreds and hundreds of skills I want the kid to have, mm-hmm. dozens and dozens of habits I want the kid mm-hmm. to have. And each of them uh, uh, it comes in varying degrees of complexity. Sometimes the kid's ready for that at age three, but sometimes not until age eight, sometimes mm-hmm. not until age 14. So there's the physical developmental things and the psychological developmental things. So mm. part of the answer then to the question of education is that there, you, you have to start off as a philosopher, I think. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so you have to sure. answer the question, what is, what is, uh, what is human life all about? Mm-hmm. Right? What, what do I want this kid to – what kind of life do I want this kid to live? And that's mm-hmm. a philosophical question. And what what uh, what are the good things that I want the kid to be able to enjoy? What are the bad things I want the kid to just uh, to to, uh, to stay away from? So there's good and bad in there, and I have to know something about uh, uh, not only philosophy, but I also have to know something about biology. So all of the nutritional issues and all of the health mm. issues for me as a parent to raise the child mm. to grow uh, physically. Uh, and there's a mm. lot of biology that uh, that uh, that is going on there, and that it's uh, that it's staged out. There's developmental uh, things. You know what happens, you know, cognitively in the first couple of years as the brain starts to develop, and how right. do uh, just even you know, before we say the kid uh, is able to write, if we want to say, well, writing is important, but there are still mm-hmm. physical developmental things with respect right. to the hand. Right. And coordinations and eye-hand coordinations and mm. those don't come online until a certain age. So all of those physical developmental things, and then mm. uh, puberty is another big one that <laughs> right. you know that, that kicks through. Yeah. And so educating before and after puberty, and then the same thing holds psychologically. You know, so you might say, yeah, we want the kids to be able to do algebra and uh, functions and relations and uh, maybe some calculus before they right. uh, they uh, they go out into the world. But you can't do calculus at age three. So you have to start with numbers and then arithmetic and some geometry, and then you're ready to do algebra and trigonometry, and then you're ready to do maybe some calculus. But all of these things take time because partly it's brain development, but also it's psychological Mm -hmm. development. And in many cases, the skills and the knowledge are cumulative. So Mm -hmm. education then is, and this would be just a rough and ready definition, right? the strategic plan that educators develop for young people to take them from zero infancy to 18, say, full Mm -hmm. maturity and everything that goes in there. That's education. So would you include in there any uh, moral aspect in that? Like I I think about during COVID, there was, um, and I don't know where you land on this, but I, I felt like there was a lot of 
scientists and people who had gone through the the, ed, the education system, let's just say like a, the general American education system from age whatever six to eighteen, or and or probably like twenty six, or they're like PhD people. Anyway, they who knew the methods of science, but didn't have the moral backbone to say the truth, and that those and I, I've I've noticed that in the education system, at least what I've seen, is that there's been some sort of detachment of the the methods of education from the moral the, the morals of human life or, or existence or whatever, that those two things can be detached from each other and that you can learn the methods yeah. without having the morality to, uh, to undergird that. Um, and right. then what happens ultimately, I think, is that you get something like the COVID situation where you have people who are willing to, to, to lie or uh, or you know, kind of deceive or kind of, you know, make, make things up on some, on some certain basis. Uh, but what, so yeah, where would you add, uh, or would you add a moral, a moral aspect into that? Absolutely. Yes. Yeah. So your COVID example is a good one. And so often, uh, weaknesses in our education system are pointed out to us during crises. Sure. And so right, COVID right. was a crisis, and then yeah. suddenly we 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 uh, we realize that we don't have something that we need yeah. to be able to deal right. with this crisis. Okay, and right. uh, yeah, moral standards and uh, moral courage, right, was one of the things that we did find lacking in mm-hmm. some people we, who were, we wanted to step up to the plate. Right. Uh, mixing my metaphors there, but to uh, <laughs> to, to to deliver not only some. Uh, scientific and technological medical expertise, but also uh, the the moral wisdom that goes along with that. Yeah, as you say that real that, quick, hey, did you watch Oppenheimer? Yes. I feel like that's a somewhat of a similar example, just what you're saying, the moral oh, yeah, the yeah. technical. Yeah, yeah wars and, uh, is another uh, yeah. kind of crisis that yeah, arises, right, or right. any hugely new uh, technological um, um uh, breakthrough uh, in that yeah, case, right. the development of uh, nuclear power and and, yeah. and possible weaponization. Yeah. And now we're talking about robotics and artificial intelligence right. as another right. technological breakthrough. So mm-hmm. it either raises uh, new kinds of moral questions or uh, just major wrinkles or variations yeah. on on existing ones, right. and we have to rethink everything through in light of the new technological breakthrough. So that's another another very good example. I think uh, uh, what we're dealing with in the contemporary education world is two kinds of problems about what you're, you talk about in terms of method and morality. And that, that's, that's a fine rough draft distinction to, sure. to introduce there uh, at that point. One is a, a philosophical problem where there is a kind of skepticism that has been plaguing philosophy for many centuries now. That says there's a dichotomy between fact statements and value statements. Mm. Uh, that we can talk about the facts, but the facts are amoral. And if you're mm. only talking about the facts, there's no way to moralize right on the basis of those. As often it goes the other way, that we uh, start with morals uh, that we mm. think are important, right, correct in some way. But we don't see how those can be factually based. And so we then say, well, morals are just matters of faith or subjective preferences or arbitrary inventions or 
emotional reactions. And we think of emotions, again, as uh, separate from facts and reasoning and science and so on. So there has been this whole dichotomy that Mm -hmm. several of the major schools of philosophy have bought into in various forms that has shaped much of modern philosophical thinking. So Mm -hmm. uh, how you get from one to the other uh, and whether they can be integrated is a big philosophical issue. But what that then leads to, to the extent that you think that the dichotomy is true, is that you think what can be, what will be rational and what is emotional, right? Mm. Or what is uh, true and what is significant, right? Or Mm. what is scientific and what is valuable, that you're talking different languages Mm. and that there's no way to get between those two. And then that will then lead to people who think, well, no, I'm about reason. I'm about logic. I'm about science. I'm about the facts. They will then say, to the extent that I think I have to be about those things, I can't be talking about values and meaning and significance and, mm-hmm. and, and ethics, because that's a different kind of language that's alien to my, my area of expertise. And then at the same time, you will have lots and lots of people who will then say, I think my values are important. Meaning and Mm. significance uh, is important. And being emotionally invested in things Mm. is what's significant to me. But they will take the lesson that that means that they need to be non-rational, non-scientific, illogical, and not to see the facts as having any bearing on the value part of their life. And so you end up with two camps or two tribes that are divorced from each other. Hmm. And that's a that's a big problem in intellectual life and in, in cultural life. Have you so, read the... So, the, so let me just, go, yeah, uh, go just draw, just draw a line here. So the example that you pointed out about COVID, where you then had a large number of people who were great at the science hmm. uh, of, of immunology. Uh, they're very great on the technologies and they knew what all of the mRNA... Uh, vaccines uh, could potentially right. do and so forth, but they had zero training in mm-hmm. anything to do with policy, with making judgments of good and bad, right and wrong. Right. And so they were not able to do so. Right? Mm-hmm. And then at the same time, you had large numbers of people who were willing to say what should be done, who thought they were quite competent at being able to say all of those things about what should be done but not knowing much about the science or the technology. And that dichotomy is a, a very bad place for us to be. Right. Did you, uh, have you ever read the book, uh, The Pilgrim's Regress by C.S. Lewis? No, not that one. So, so it's like, okay, so at, in it's uh, C.S. Lewis's kind of conversion to Christianity, but he says it as like in dream form. And the character in it, as, as he travels uh, further north, things become more rational. Um, to the point of like a coldness and a staleness. And he, as he travels more south, things become really romantic to the point of like almost like postmodern ambiguity. Like nothing is true, nothing is real. Everything's okay, so, so expressive. That's a, a nice literary romanticism uh, yeah. way of, of, of having, the, uh, having the dichotomy, right? Yeah, exactly. That's kind so, of what I was so thinking cold about. versus warm, right? rational mm-hmm. versus emotional. Yeah. And the versus is the important word there. If you think as a matter philosophically, that that versus is right, that it's an either or, that there's a hard line, then that's the thing that sets you up for the problems in my view. Yeah. 
Yeah. Well, yeah, exactly. And I think what he's, so what he was kind of saying is that like at towards the center of that, that uh, when you get to like the center, when you're not totally South or totally North there, there's a chasm and you can't get across the chasm unless, um, this lady right. named mother Kirk takes you. Mother Kirk right. is a representation of the church and the chasm is a representation. You take, you takes you to the yeah, to Christ. So that's a nice literary statement of, yeah. And the, the mm-hmm. chasm language is exactly the either or, or the dichotomy. Yeah. Hmm. That you you can talk the one kind of language, but it's a different kind of language than the other kind of language over here. So we can talk the language of science or the language of religion. We can Hmm. talk the language of facts or we can talk the language of values, right, Hmm. and so forth. So what do you, how do you, so are you, let me, I want to clarify. So are you kind of in the, in the camp of that you, that you, you have to talk about them all separately? Are you saying that you, that that's a that you have to actually figure out where they come together or uh, is this, what, what was your uh, right. No, right now we're just diagnosing. Right, totally. The totally. I, yeah. What I'm saying is, right. That is a problem mm-hmm. that has been widespread in mm-hmm. philosophy for mm-hmm. several gotcha. centuries now. Right. And many of the leading schools of philosophy, mm-hmm. right. However much they might disagree about lots of things, Sure. will agree right. on that particular chasm or that mm. particular dichotomy. Mm-hmm. Now you ask about me in particular, yes. yeah. right? I think that dichotomy is a false dichotomy, right? Okay. That there is no chasm, right, so to speak. Now I do mm-hmm. think, you know, if you start philosophically in some places, you will run into a chasm. You'll make a you make an early mistake, it will mm-hmm. lead you to chasm sure. thinking. I kind of like that as a as a metaphor. <laughs> or if you start over here and you make commitments here, you won't be able to get to 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 over to uh, to over here. But I do think sure. as a as a matter of philosophy, I'll just state what the conclusion is. I don't think value statements are a different kind of statement from fact statement. That value statements are a kind of fact statement. It's a mm-hmm. rather than saying there's one species here and another species over here. Yeah. Like the broader thing is there are fact statements and some of those fact statements are value statements. Mm. So that then is to say, um, uh, since you have a more theologically informed uh, audience, uh, mm-hmm. uh, that would be then to say this is a more Aristotle, Aquinas approach to sure. philosophy. That's mine versus a more Platonic, Augustinian approach, mm. which is – a kind of chasm philosophy, right? We have this mm-hmm. world, but instead of this language over here and this language over here, then we'll put it this way. You know, there's lots, mm-hmm. of, lots of facts in this world, but they are not moral facts. They are amoral facts. Right. And then, or, or they are about the physical world. Yeah. And then the chasm is that there's another world that is above, it's higher, mm-hmm. it's yeah. better. And that's where we find morals, right? You don't find morals mm-hmm. in this lower world. Uh, and they are spiritual or, or they are of the soul. Mm. They are not of the body. They are not of right. the material world. Mm. So that's a different kind of chasm thinking, but it's arrayed on a, a vertical. Where so did you come to that? To put it, and to say there's the Platonic oh. Augustinian tradition, and that mm. has its modern forms, but there's also the Aristotle Aquinas tradition that sees them from the beginning as integrated value sure. and fact statements. So, yeah. So where did you, how did you come to, to being in the, the Aristotle, the, the, the intertwined camp, I guess. How, how did you come to get to, to that point? 
uh, well, I, I would say in my philosophy of education, I read uh, uh, both sides of the both sides of the arguments and came to mm -hmm. agree with those who were on the uh, uh, the no chasm right side of the line. So in that tradition, right, you would have people like you know Aristotle, Aquinas in various ways, John Locke to a certain extent. Okay. Uh, on some issues, uh, he's he's a little more complex there. A little bit later, uh, someone like Friedrich Nietzsche okay. in different ways. Uh, obviously, I've got big problems with Nietzsche in lots of ways, but on this okay. issue, he doesn't see a dichotomy there. In the 20th century, Ayn Rand, and huh. then a little bit later, Philip Foot. So they are all in that non-chasm gotcha. uh, huh. uh, 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 approach. So, so let me just let me just give you give you one one quick and dirty example. Human beings, you know, as we've been talking about, are very very complicated. But suppose we weren't talking about humans. And suppose we were talking about some animal species. And I would say, does it make sense to say that um, uh, fish being in water is good for a fish, and a fish being taken out of water? And put on dry land is bad for the fish. Hmm. And quite commonsensically, we would say right. yes. Right? Yeah. <laughs> it's right. good for a fish to be in water and swimming around, and it's bad for a fish to be on land. Right. But notice what we're doing there. We're using good and bad language. Hmm. And we're saying some things are naturally good for the fish, and some things are naturally bad for the fish. Hmm. And we say, well, why is why is it good for a fish to be in water? And, and it's not that we're just, you know, emotionally making some commitment to the fish lifestyle, right? Or, right. you know, that I'm, I'm waiting for some divine revelation about what fish moral commandments should be. Thou shalt swim in the water, <laughs> yeah, right. et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. Uh, uh, and it's not just a subjective preference. You know, I happen to like fish swimming in the water because that's mm. how I was raised or whatever. No, <laughs> fish yeah. are, are a biological organism. They have certain needs. They have certain mm. capacities. In the water, they can uh, exercise their capacities for swimming, the way their gills work, mm -hmm. to get the oxygen which they need that happens to be in the water into their system so they can do what they need biologically. Mm -hmm. And so we're just naturalistically and factually and scientifically describing the fish's lifestyle. And for the fish to stay alive and function as a fish, this is what it needs to do, needs mm -hmm. capacities, resources, and so on. And so the Oral language or the language of good and bad just falls out of that quite naturalistically. Mm. And what mm. we mean by saying it's bad for the fish is, you know, you take the fish and you throw it on the dry land. Mm -hmm. Well, you know, it cannot exercise its capacities right. for swimming to make mm. the water flow over its gills. And so it mm -hmm. can't get the oxygen that it needs from mm. the environment in order to maintain its life functions. And that's bad for the mm. fish because the fish is going to die. Right. Mm -hmm. So there's some mm -hmm. sort of standard of natural living and some sort of standard of death that are grounding naturally mm -hmm. our distinction between the good and the bad. Now, yeah. that's a very basic example, but that's how right. the Aristotle, right, uh, Aristotelian approach, because Aristotle yeah. was a great biologist as well as a great philosopher. So people in that tradition will then say, mm -hmm. yeah, that's, we start by looking at nature and living things. Some have to do certain things to stay alive. And if they right. don't, they will die. And that grounds the distinction between good and bad. And yeah. then it just becomes 
more and more complicated depending on how complicated the species is. And the reason why we uh, mm. find it very difficult for human beings uh, is that we are just incredibly complicated, our lifestyle. Right. And so in many cases, the very complicated things that are part of our life, we have not yet figured out what sort of natural facts would ground those. So right. there's a long philosophical but very interesting discussion yeah. to be had there. Yeah, no, but that's all this comes back to your point about education. Right. If you yeah. come to education and you think that facts and values are – there's a chasm between them. That's going to shape how you do education. And if you mm -hmm. think facts are integrated with values, then that's also going to shape how you do education. Yeah, and I was going to say, I mean, it, fe it felt like growing up that there was that that dichotomy, like the 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 idea that um, things are amoral or that there's nothing, there's no morality connected to the things that I'm learning. Or I mean, I even think about this as it relates to the origin story. I mean, as we are in biology, uh, growing up, you have. You get. I mean, I got taught the evolutionary process at the Big Bang as an origin, and a lot of people agree with that. Okay, but like from a let's just say like a fundamentalist Christian perspective, the origin of the world is not the evolutionary Big Bang perspective, and yet those two things have deep philosophical and moral uh, realities tied to them. So if, if you're going to yes. take a, an evolutionary position, then that 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 uh that human beings evolved through millions and millions of years you're going to have to take that all the way down to the moral ethics that evolved through those millions and billions of years as well and then you right. know where where god maybe god created you know the christian perspective god created the moral ethics and so it was I was always insanely confused that it was like no this andy this is just they would say andy this is the science this isn't the morality and i was like but the the this science that you're telling me has moral implications so how am i supposed oh, yeah. to deal with these right. things uh, you know it's obviously i'm venting a little bit but it was it was always just very no, confusing no, uh, this is exactly right what a thoughtful person needs to grapple with right on those sure. issues so if you say right one story is the big bang story about uh the origins of uh, of the universe and how we came to be what we are mm -hmm. and another story is a kind of judeo-christian creation mm -hmm. story right? Mm -hmm. right from the very beginning they are making different metaphysical assumptions mm, and yeah. those very different metaphysical assumptions down the road have very different implications for ethics and the, uh, both of those philosophical systems worked out will then have different uh, implications for education because all educators are going to say at some level well we want to teach the truth mm -hmm. but what is the truth is it the evolutionary story, in, in which case your education will go in that direction, hmm. and it will seem irresponsible to you to teach things that you think are ridiculous and not true? Mm -hmm. But then the same thing starts over here. If you start with the creation story and you think that's the truth, then when you get that all worked out, you're going to say, my responsibility as an educator is to teach the truth. Hmm. And so you will teach that, and it will seem irresponsible to you to mm. teach what you think is the false model as well. So you and end I, up with yeah. a dichotomized culture and dichotomized education systems. And I think that this is playing playing itself out in the transgender or let's I, – I, I mean going as far as the transhumanist movement in that people uh, – <laughs> I don't know where you stand on the evolution thing, but I'm not I'm I'm not convinced of it. So let's just 
you know, and I want you to tear this apart if you, you know, and tell me what I'm wrong about here, but that it feels like the, the evolutionary perspective, like logically, or maybe logically it's taking you to that transhumanist conclusion that the, the next step in the evolution is towards a transhumanist reality or world that everybody interacts with each other transhumanly and, and that we're not connected necessarily to our biological functions and things like that. Um, and that, that seems where the, that's what that's going. Um, and so, th- I mean, that's just an example that I thought of in my head that it's like, okay, it, that is a philosophical and moral implication of what I think is the evolutionary worldview. Now, mm. what, what do you think about that? Do you, is, is that kind of wild or out there? I would say uh, uh, transhumanism is one possible uh, direction that uh, an, an evolutionary understanding mm-hmm. of the world and the and an evolution of humans could go. Right, and it's you know it's partly speculative. You know, to, you know, take certain uh, you know, developments in sciences and technology, and mm-hmm. it extrapolates those. But there mm-hmm. are always lots of different ways to to uh, to extrapolate, mm-hmm. even within transhumanism uh you know, i think there are a number of different or sub schools of transhumanism yeah, and right so i don't want to uh, to do uh, to, too too much speculation but there is an interesting packaging that goes on so if you take the evolutionary model one of the interesting ethical implications is the idea that in, we are improving and getting better over time mm. now, already that's 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 controversial right but then to say you know, we started as a less developed species with fewer capacities. And mm-hmm. as we go along, partly through natural selection and also through our own choices of doing cultural selection, yeah. we are improving. And we now yeah. then have the capacity to improve ourselves in various ways. So mm-hmm. if we think, for example, we used to all be a lot shorter. Now we are all getting taller or our lifespan was 20 years. Then it was 30 years, 40 years. So yeah. if you think life is good, longer lifespan is better. So we are improving. Uh, maybe because the world is getting more complicated, that's putting more cognitive demands on us. Yeah. Uh, and so we're getting smarter. And so built into all of that way of thinking is that we are starting from a good but less good place and we are becoming better and better. Mm-hmm. And that's mm-hmm. that's one – I'd say that's controversial, but that, and that's one yeah. possible right, evolutionary yeah. art. But that also is a smack in the face of one of the versions of the traditional creation model. Mm Because the traditional creation model has things going in the other direction. You start with a god who is perfectly good, and he makes a world either that was perfect or pretty good. (laughs) Again, there are some – Yeah, it's confusing that the devil was in the garden. Yeah, exactly. uh, Where did the devil come from? But let's put that one to the side. Yeah. But then there were humans in the garden and, you know, they were pretty good, but they had some weaknesses too. And then the story is that that gets worse. You know, they sin mm-hmm. and then they sin some more. And then there's just sin everywhere until you get mm-hmm. to the generation of Noah and the whole world is polluted. Mm-hmm. And right. So, but then what we have though is a metaphysical view that says we start from the good and the history of the world is a decline history of the world. Right. And that is human beings who are making it worse and worse. Hmm. And that morally uh, a way of framing your understanding of humans and their place in the world in terms of decline and it's your fault as a human being is very hmm. different 
from the way of framing the entire world, which is to say we started neutral and we are through our, our you know, great capacities becoming better and better. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. so those two are going to collide with each other mm-hmm. in, uh, right. in the schools. And I think they should collide with each other. Yeah, it's an interesting thing because even when you say better and better, I think to myself, obviously I come from the – Christian perspective, like I think humans are. De- I come from a Calvinist perspective, so I, I like mm. I'm like hardcore, like in a way, you know. Like I think p- humans are depraved, and and so even when we say like, okay, what's good? Well, let's just about- just be clear. Um, you're speaking for yourself. <laughs> yeah, yeah, for sure, for right. sure. <laughs> um, Please don't I, include I, that in me, otherwise I'll take it as an insult. <laughs> no, I'll, I'll just talk about, yeah, this is just true about me. Um, so when you say about like, what's good is that, um, you know, like that we're living longer and longer lives. Like that was just one thing where I'd say like, yeah, from the other perspective, it's like, you're li- we're living longer and longer lives, but for, for like what purpose or what reason is it, right. is it sure. for the sake yeah, if of. If you combine uh, that with uh, human depravity, then it's going to be, well, that doesn't sound like a good thing. That's just more time for people to do evil things. Yeah. Right. Right. Yeah. 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 But, and then on from the other side, it's like, no, that's more time for people to create new things and develop new opportunities right. for other people and, and to build things. So that's it's, it's right. a very confusing thing. Cause I'm not even, it's like, yeah, like, do I want to live longer in the sense, like, do I want to live longer as a Christian? It's, it's very difficult because I would love to go to heaven to be with right, God. Sure. On the other hand, I have a wife and kids and I want to see help build their lives. Up. You know what I mean? And so it's just a, oh, it's yeah. a, no, that, that, that's wow. a huge value. Right? So, mm-hmm. yeah, the, the value of life on earth is exactly right at stake mm-hmm. there. So if yeah. uh, one of the implications is uh, of the creation model, God created us for a particular purpose or to fulfill some roles here. But yeah. really – the goal is not here on earth. Mm. The goal is to get reunited with God and get into heaven in somehow. Mm. And the sooner the better that happens, <laughs> right, which is a natural part sure. or a supernatural part of that package, then uh, mm. your estimation of life is very different right, from mm-hmm. the kind of person who says, mm-hmm. I don't think there is a heaven and a hell. Uh, yeah, and this is right. my life. Right. And uh, I would rather have 80 years of it than 60 mm-hmm. years. And I would actually rather have 100 years of it. Mm-hmm. And, uh, uh, and so life extension becomes a value because you've assessed life. Right. So it, As life it. on earth becomes the most important thing. Yeah. And that shapes your entire value framework and then your education framework right. compared to the other, which is to say, not that you're completely indifferent <laughs> to life on earth, but you are committed to saying, you know, uh, I, I've got my duties to do here, but the sooner I can discharge mm-hmm. those duty to get on with the real uh, value, which is in the next world, the better. Mm-hmm. Do you think those that are that, going to collide? Yeah, I'm, I'm. I'm curious. Do you think that that affects your morals? Which that that affects the the morals? Because we had talked about some way in some way that the that morals are intertwined with the science that you can kind of oh, in yeah. some way empirically so find. A very a very good example then would be. Um, you know, to take a, a scientifically trained person, a medical doctor. Yeah. And, and so someone comes in uh, having suffered some terrible accident. Uh-huh. And uh, you know, if I'm a medical doctor, do I want to save this person or not save this person? Mm-hmm. Now, I could say, oh, uh, this person, I could just, you know, mm-hmm. <laughs> not do anything. The person will die and go to heaven. Mm-hmm. Right. So I'm doing the person a favor by not mm-hmm. treating them. Mm-hmm. Right, but that, uh, from that would make sense from one moral perspective based on a certain religious perspective. The other one is to say, no, no, living longer is good. And I've got all of this scientific and technical skill 
that mm-hmm. hopefully would enable this person to get past this accident and live mm-hmm. longer. And so it becomes my moral responsibility mm-hmm. to use all of my scientific training in the service of that good. Mm-hmm. So yes, exactly. Mm-hmm. That would be granted. I will say. Oh, go ahead. Sorry. Yeah. I- and it also has to do with uh, with with methods. Uh, to come back to that one. So if you say, well, why are people sick or why do bad things happen in the world? We do know uh, one of the the more physical materialists say, well, stuff happens in the material world. Mm. And so the methods that we use when someone is damaged are going to be more material methods. We give them Mm. surgical interventions. We give them antibiotics and Mm. so forth. Right. Whereas there's another version of the Judeo-Christian cosmology. I don't think this is yours, though, that basically says everything that is going wrong in the physical world is because it is out of connection to the spiritual. Hmm. And so what you need to do anytime there's a problem in the physical world is reestablish that connection with the spiritual world. And then you don't do materialistic stuff. Is that more Eastern? Uh, well, there are Christian science, uh, um, and, uh, which is a more the- strongly theological version. Say, when someone is right. sick, you need to pray for this person more. Yeah, okay. And right. they will right. explicitly say, you do right. not do blood transfusions. You do not do surgeries. You do sure. not do uh, right. antibiotics. And they will huh. see themselves as arguing from a religious moral perspective but it's based on a certain metaphysics that says the spiritual has primacy over the material and that leads to certain methods. Mm. Uh, so yes, it yeah. is of course, yeah, very Eastern, but also yeah, the, the very common notion of uh, when someone is sick with whatever is among religious people say, yeah, I'm pray for you. Yeah. Right. And from a, a more physicalistic perspective, well, how is prayer Right. Going to going to do anything. The person needs antibiotics, not prayer. The other person wants <laughs> right. to say, well, no, uh, God will heal if God mm-hmm. listens to our prayers and, uh, and makes a judgment call. So because everything ultimately is dependent upon God. Right. And so you use that right. different method. But that's tied to a different metaphysics. Yeah. No, that makes sense. This is really interesting. I, I just want to say in defense of the Calvinist, I, I don't know, like the Calvinist perspective, as far as I understand it, is that the, the role of the Christian is to fulfill the predestined duty. And so in the sense that like Christ didn't, he didn't come down and then go right back up because it was better up there. He came down, fulfilled the duty after 33 years, then ascended into heaven. And so I don't, I, I wouldn't say at least for me, like I wouldn't say that the goal for me is to try to get as many people to heaven if I were that doctor, but rather right. um, to do the to do the morally right thing in that spot, which would be to try to help that person because I think that that would be that's my maybe my predestined. Um, no, no, that, that's purpose. that's right, and that's to, that's to raise another hugely important philosophical issue that we've not yet talked about, and that yeah. is you know, the issue of free will and determinism. So, yeah, right, right, and that that is itself a metaphysical position. Uh, but it's going to have uh, you know, strong implications for what you understand the human being to be, right? What powers the person has, including what responsibilities the person has. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then once you've delineated that, then there are going to be certain right ethical implications. Right? And so, yeah. yeah, it does make sense. If you start from a theological position that says God is infinite, right? And that means he's infinite in all of the important directions and he's going to be infinite in his power, and if he is infinite in his power, that means he has all of the power. 
Mm. And, but if he has all of the power, then human beings cannot have any wow. of the power. Mm. Right? And so right. agency and volition mm. and, and, and moral responsibility, those are all powers mm. right, that mm -hmm. we sometimes say that human beings have. But to the extent that we augment the powers of God, we necessarily have to diminish the powers of human beings into mm -hmm. a, a strong position that would say basically everything is scripted by God. And the, you know, the, the, the don't take this too pejoratively, but we're really no, just puppets, right? right? Uh, uh, just doing what God wants right for us. Or right. we're like actors on a stage and God is right. the great screenwriter or script writer. Yeah. And, no. you know, we, no, I mean, we those are make ourselves and make our lines right. And yeah. So on. yeah. A hundred percent. Slightly softer versions of Calvinism and other mm -hmm. uh, theologies in that area that will say that God has all of the power in principle, but he delegates some of the powers temporarily to human beings. And so human beings will have some delimited powers for certain mm -hmm. purposes for a certain right. amount of time, but ultimately all of the power will go to go back to God. And that's not, right. a, that's not a hardcore predestinarianism, but it's, you know, like one step removed from, yeah. from that. Yeah, no, and, and that's then, all a hundred percent accurate. I mean, I like that's, those are the big theological questions that I've, faced and a lot of young people Christians face and it's and, and I mean for me it's come down to the to the mystery of free agency and 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 predestination and that like mm -hmm. in some capacity I'm I am responsible for my life and in another capacity I'm I've been predestined to into the election right so and what you then have is another chasm that you've yeah. created for mm -hmm. yourself right coming from a different philosophical different philosophical issue right. So on the one hand, uh, typically Christians do want to say morality is an important part of my my, my religious package. For some Christians, mm -hmm. it's the most important part part mm -hmm. of the package, mm -hmm. and that then is to say I'm going to take moral responsibility very seriously. Mm -hmm. But at the same time, one is committed to a metaphysical position about the nature of God, mm -hmm. that God is infinite and infinite in His knowledge, infinite in His power, and so on. But there are obviously logical tensions at the minimum yeah. and outright logical contradictions at the worst 100%. between right. those. So is it possible to uh, logically put those two commitments together or do you have to choose mm -hmm. one or mm -hmm. the other? Mm -hmm. And then that, of course, leads directly into uh, epistemological issues, issues yeah. about knowledge. Uh, some people will say, well, no, the important thing is we should come up with a religious philosophy that's logical. And is mm -hmm. logically consistent. Mm -hmm. And so if I have a tension between saying that God has all of the power, but nonetheless, <clears throat> I also want to say humans have some moral power, mm -hmm. I have to find a way to make that logically consistent right? mm -hmm. uh, uh, because I'm committed to logic. Mm -hmm. And that's an epistemological position. But then other Christians will say, I'm committed to God has all the power. I'm committed to human beings are morally responsible. Mm -hmm. I don't see any way to make that consistent. And so I'm going to start talking the language of mystery and the language of faith. Right. It's just an article of mm -hmm. faith. I just mm -hmm. have to accept it and not really try to figure it out too much. Mm -hmm. And that's to commit to a different epistemology. Mm -hmm. Now, then when we come back to our main topic of the, the day, which is education, that mm -hmm. is another issue that's going to have huge implications for how you educate your children. Right. Do you teach children from the beginning that they need to be logical? and rational and train uh -huh. them to be right. very sensitive to any sort of logical tension 
or a logical contradiction in their thinking. And when they find one to say, oh, there's a mistake here because things can't be illogical. And so I need to be more clever and creative at finding ways of overcoming these logical contradictions. Mm -hmm. And that's what you make fundamental in your educational methods. Or Mm -hmm. does your philosophy then say, well, ultimately, things are uh, beyond human comprehension, beyond human logic, beyond human rationality. Who am I to try to understand things? Ultimately, Mm -hmm. everything is a mystery. And here are the truths, the 10 Mm -hmm. truths, the 20 truths that are absolutely true. And you had better believe them. Don't ask so many questions. Don't be a troublemaker. Mm -hmm. And you make that a part of your educational method. That one is also with us and uh, in collision in how we do schooling. So, uh, yeah, and I know we got to wrap this up, but I I have... and tell me if you if you if you're like this is too long for me to answer. That's totally fine. No problem. Um, who should who should be the arbiters of that of those decisions as far as how we educate maybe ourselves, but even our children? Um, yeah. And, and that might be a way too big of a question. So. Well, that's a big question, but I can I can take that one up. But I, I, I guess it's probably the most important question in yeah. education, right? Who who should mm-hmm. be the arbiter? Now, my view. And I'll, I'll take the last word here <laughs> since yeah. I'm the invited, I yeah. am the invited guest. Yeah. No, I, uh, I think we are individuals. Right? We each have our own life to live. Uh, we have our own minds. And the ultimate responsibility for getting a good education resides with the individual. Mm. Now, parents do have a responsibility. Educators have a responsibility to foster that when children are young. It can be crushed. When kids are too young by overpowerful parents and overbearing teachers and so forth. But that is fundamentally the most important thing. I think the thing that makes human beings the wonderfully distinctive creature that they are mm. is that they have the capacity to take charge of their own lives, to develop their minds, to develop their bodies, and to put together their view of what life is and should be all about. And that's the most important thing that we need to do in education. And of course, it should be a, a lifelong thing that we're always right on the on on that process. So mm. I, if you answer then your question about the arbiter, the ultimate arbiter, I think, should be each individual. Mm. We each ultimately need to make our own decisions, what we think is true, what is false, what's valuable, what's not valuable, what's important, what's not important. Parents, educators, and so forth uh, can and should be providing huge amounts of guidance in that process. But the ultimate is I am responsible for making my own decisions in life, for acting in my life on what I think is right, true, good, beautiful in the world, and hopefully living a good life and enjoying the rewards. But if I make mistakes, then I also bear the responsibility for those mistakes. So hmm. each individual is the arbiter of their own life. Hmm. Yeah, no, that makes, I mean, gosh, I wish we could talk longer. There's so many things, okay. there's so many more questions, well, but yes. I really do. Let me, let me then just say, you know, this has been an enjoyable conversation and I yeah. know we only got uh, uh, at the very beginning of your list of questions. <laughs> no problem. But let's, uh, let's uh, if you're open, plan to do another one, uh, yeah. maybe toward the end of this year. That the sounds end of 2024. great. 
That would be so, awesome. Uh, yeah. yeah, we can uh, we can reboot. Yeah, for sure. I mean, and I'll, I'll shoot you an email, but um, yeah, thanks so much for doing this. I really appreciate it. I mean, this is this okay. super interesting. I hope people learned a lot great. from this. Um, okay, pleasure. Me... Good questions. Great stuff.